The Witch and the Orchard. Written by Desmond Lynch. Episode 1. A Cold Welcome. There was something evil lying in the orchard. The fruits had grown sour and the trees had begun to wilt. A bleak grey sky hung over the valley and the paths were murky with fog. The people of Harrowsborough grew nervous as the weather worsened. A deathly chill loomed through the village's small houses along the main road. It had only been three weeks since the mists arrived, but in their manic state they grew desperate. And that is when they sent for her. She came on a grey mare one miserable morning, a tall hat donned on top of her short platinum hair and a scarf covering her neck and mouth, trying to hide the grisly burns on her skin, but to no avail. The mare carries heavy satchels, while the woman's long brown coat is bulky, packed to the brim with the sheer amount of materials in her pockets. Her silver eyes look upon the poor houses, weary with rage and disgust. No one can be seen, but the witch feels eyes all around her. The grey mare ascends the hill to the villa. Coming into the yard, the woman is greeted by a stable hand. She dismounts and casts her ghostly gaze upon the stable hand. Take care of the horse, boy. Any mistreatment will be returned thrice hold on you and your family. The boy shudders as with shaky hands he grips the reins and leads the grey mare to the stables. She turns and walks forward. Witch? And the witch turns and sees back from the other side of the plaza stands a tall thin man dressed in fine dark threads. Grey hair receding back behind his ears, revealing a prominent forehead with the trenches of time wrinkled on his skin. A thin moustache stands above a fierce scowl. His eyes are proper and contemptuous. He stands tall with his hands behind his back. Witch, you've been summoned. She looks back at the door at the top of the stairs and then back at the man coldly. She makes her way back across the plaza towards him. The butler turns and then begins moving back from whence he came, down a narrow corridor between the blacksmith and the stables toward a small wooden door. He opens the door, looks back to see the witch and then wordlessly enters. The witch follows. It has been some time since I have made my way through this valley. Last time I believe the Lady Francesca had ruled over these lands. The Lady Francesca has sadly passed a number of years ago. Her husband, the Lord Frankfurt, has taken up her position and has kindly taken care of the valley in her wake. The Lady Francesca remarried? Quite. That's quite strange. For you see, the last I heard, the Lady was far too old to marry. The butler comes to a halt and turns to face the witch. I believe what peasants and travellers alike would say was that our fields could no longer reap what had been sown. Do not speak of the Lady in such a manner, witch. My apologies. I was merely asking as to what type of lord would marry a lady who was so past her prime. Are you questioning my lord's integrity? No, no. I have to see it first. The butler glares at the witch. He turns away and continues his descent down the stairs. The witch follows. They emerge from the dim stairway to a bleak large kitchen. White walls surround the busy staff who grow to a halt as the butler enters with the witch in tow. They quickly begin to avert their eyes and attempt to go back to the work as the witch follows the butler forward. They trek down narrowing corridors. Cold stone floors and whitewashed walls gradually begin to run lavish as they come towards the main corridors of the villa. They pass several colourful paintings of a vineyard. The witch looks at them incredulously as they move past. No grapes grow here. Pardon? These paintings, they're of a vineyard. This very much is not a vineyard. No, what you see before you are paintings of the Lord's home of Harberton, west of Junetown. 
However, due to a tragic series of events that I am not at liberty to discuss, he was forced to sell off the land and move on. Thankfully, he is doing better with the orchard and the valley. Which were previously the property of his late wife? Yes. So the Lady Francesca married a man with no land or titles. May I give you some advice, dear witch? Do, please. Be wary of the questions you ask, particularly of those of a far higher stature than yourself. Be humble because you are humble. Know your place, and do not stretch your gaze upon lands that you are not welcome upon. I'm a witch, dear butler. I'm not welcome anywhere. You will not speak of political matters or speak ill of the Lord's late wife to either me, any member of staff, and especially not to the Lord Frankfurt himself. Is that understood? Why, frankly, Is that I understood? Yes. Good. Now follow me. They continue down the corridor as it begins to widen and the archways grow taller. They come to a grand oak door with a cool draft creeping in from under it. As they approach the door, the butler grabs the handle, but before opening it, he looks at the witch bitterly. The Lord has granted you an audience with him. You address him as my lord, not my lord. You will bow when you greet him and bow when you bid farewell. You will stand up perfectly straight. You will not approach the Lord unless asked to do so. You will not stare at him in the eyes and you will compose yourself respectfully. In short, you will show him the utmost respect and authority that he is entitled to. Is that understood? Understood. Good. Now ready yourself. The butler opens the grand oak doors and leads her inside. They enter a large room with a small garden in the centre, with an opening to the grey sky above shining down. The floor is of cool marble tiles that lead up towards the garden, where the marble is replaced by fine soil that splits off into six separate neat sections, the largest of which is in the centre and supports a large apple tree. Several rose bushes stand beside it. Unlike the plants outside, the garden seems to be in perfect condition. They find a middle-aged man seated on a bench beneath an apple tree. His amber hair is long and slick back neatly. He sips at a glass of wine as he smells a rose in the other. He looks up at the sky and frowns. He places the flower down on the bench, folding his legs, and looks towards them. They grow to a halt right outside the garden. The butler takes a few steps forward and bows gently. Introducing Henrika Ordair, the last witch of the East. Before you, witch, is the Lord Frankford Kylewander of Harrowfield. The witch looks forth into the Lord's careless eyes. She walks forward into the garden and stands over him. She moves her hand forth and gestures for a handshake. Pleasure to meet you, Frankfurt. The Lord looks up at her, unamused. Now, my Lord, I, I did tell her- Quiet, Joseph. The Lord rises from his seat and moves towards a rosebush opposite Henrika. Witch, you will address me properly and with the respect I am owed, or you will not address me at all. Is that understood? In my defence, Frankfurt, you and your people have shown me nothing but disrespect. First, you send me an unofficial envoy. Then, on my arrival, you have me enter through the back door like one of your servants. You lead me in such a way as to ensure you will never be seen with me. A futile gesture because everyone in this village knows I am here, as they saw me climb this very hill. Yet you do this all the same, these useless theatrics, and then you have the gall to command me to address you like some right and honourable lord, when all I have seen would prove otherwise. I am not one of your subjects, Frankfurt. I will address you how I see fit, and if that is a problem for you, then I say farewell. And there it is, that notorious sharp tongue. 
Never met a person you couldn't belittle, could you? Never met someone who didn't deserve it. Well, if we're being completely honest, witch, then I admit that I am ashamed to be standing here before you. I would not have sent for you if we did not need your services. Our priest has proved useless in the curing of the land and is only good for panicking the people. Which you may have noticed. Indeed. I'm used to cold greetings, but... Well, this town is nearly dead. Not dead. Not yet. You've seen the mists as you've entered the valley, have you not? I have. And you feel their presence? Yes. This chill in the air. I feel it. It's quite... wicked. Yes. Well, you undoubtedly have a better understanding than I. For you see, these mists appeared only three weeks ago. It started out in the orchard, but it has now spread across the entire valley. Two children have gone missing, and my workers refuse to venture out into the orchard due to their cowardice. I see no cowardice here. Only reason. Yes. Well, reason doesn't feed their starving children, and it will not appease my trading partners. One season, that's all it takes. We lose one season, and we fall behind the others. We can't afford to lose our place. I fought too hard to keep this. I won't lose it to the bloody weather! But there's something more to the weather, isn't there? So it would seem. The children in the village have been having nightmares every night since it arrived. It has agitated the parents, many of whom are my workers. The mist is an issue, and it must be dealt with, which is why I have sent for you. And what of the disappearances? If you can find the children, that will be of great import to the parents. However, the objective is to rid the valley of these accursed mists. Whereabout did these children go missing? In and around the orchard itself. I will say now that regardless of whether or not you save the children, the fee will not change. Right. I demand 50 crowns up front for the investigation. Then we will discuss my rate if I choose to take on this job. And I warn you that if I feel this job is too precarious, I will not hesitate to leave. So be it. You will receive your payment for the investigation when you return. Joseph, see her out. The witch has a lot of work ahead of her. They hear the jeers and cries of the mob before they leave the cellar. As they reach the surface, they see dozens of villagers in the plaza. A scrawny man stands halfway up the stairs to the entrance. Shambly hair falls to his shoulders, blonde turning white. He dons dark robes and a tilting tall hat rests atop his head. He stands above the villagers mightily while gesturing to the villa. I've seen it. You've seen it with thy very own eyes. That dreadful hag on that beast from hell dragged her way up these steps. To what end? To darken our poor lord's heart. 
see now what he does. First the mists, now her. It is the end. Repent, I say. Repent your sins. The butler rushes out onto the plaza. The witch follows slowly but stays hidden amongst the shadowy alleyway. What is the meaning of this? Dearest Joseph, it is good to see you. For your seat has remained empty at my sermon for quite some time. I demand you take these people and go. I will not stand for this hysteria. The shambly man moves down the steps towards the butler. We will not leave. For you see, the parish demands that the witch leave these lands at once. She is a creature of pure evil. Nothing but death follows her path. Father Loxlale, I will remind you that you are trespassing on the Lord's property. It is bad enough that you have scared these poor people from attending to their duties, but this is the Lord's land. It is the Lord's will, and you must leave at once. Do not pray us for fools, Joseph. We know that in his poor, misguided way, the Lord has been duped, possessed, into sending forth this hag. But I warn you now, an evil has gripped the heart of this land. A curse, a punishment by God for our lack of faith. One evil cannot quell another. It furthers the spread. I offer to cut off the rotten hand to save the body. For you and our Lord have chosen to spare the hand and doom the body. I believe you have underestimated the wrath of God. The priest turns there as the witch creeps out of the shadows. The crowd, startled, moves back a little. When it seeks to punish, there is no chance of redemption. You cannot cut off the hand because your body will have been burnt to a crisp. You cannot ask for forgiveness because your throat is crushed by the weight of your sin. This is not God's work for when God chooses to punish. You will know. You speak of God as if you've any notion of its holy light. Our Lord and Saviour, Sumeria, is the sun itself. The light that warms us in our darkest nights. You were begotten shadows and filth. Raised in your evil coffins, you know nothing of our true and pure ways. You are as ignorant and repulsive as swine. I've seen more of the world than you or your parishioners can even imagine. If I am ignorant, I'd like to meet your swine, as I'd imagine they'd make better conversation than you. You insult me, the voice of the people. The fact still remains. We don't want your kind here, witch. Leave now, or we will burn you like we burn the others. Oh, good people of Harrisburg. For the sake of your children and the souls to rest, grab that witch! The crowd goes manic as rocks are thrown at the witch. They lunge forward, pushing the butler aside. The witch stumbles back as the mob rushes her. She grabs a vial from her jacket full of a grey liquid and smashes it against the ground. A grey smoke bursts forth from the shattered remains of the vial. The mob begins to cough and cry as they stumble forth blindly. The witch retreats back down the alleyway towards the cellar and slams the door shut behind her.
climbs to her feet and refocuses. Opening the door gently, she begins to ascend back up to the alleyway. Laying flat on her face, a poor woman amongst the hateful crowd lies in a pool of her own blood. A gashing wound is torn into her back. The witch re-enters the plaza. She sees a few cheaply armoured men sporting shabby helmets and spears in their hands. She sees the butler standing off to the side, his eyes vacant and the splatter of blood on the tip of his chin and his white collar. Joseph, what happened? The, uh, the guards arrived. Yes. The Lord grew nervous, so he summoned from the reserve forces. We, uh, we haven't needed reserves since the last war. Why would we? Nothing but farms and nothing at all. The witch stares forth at the gate of the plaza and sees a stable boy leading her grey mare. Her hands tremble. The burned skin all over her body feels foreign and unbearably warm. She rushes across the plaza towards him. Her silver eyes glare at him manically as the boy stares at the body on the ground. What do you think you're doing? Uh, what's all? No. I felt compelled to walk the horse. Where are my bags? They're back at the stable, man. Put them back on the horse. Only I may touch my belongings. If I return and I find anything missing, I'll shrivel you up like a slug and salt. Do you hear me? Y- yes, ma'am. Go! The boy rushes forth towards the stable. The witch looks out towards the orchard. The mists around the apple trees and spread faintly across the valley. She feels the chill along the nape of her neck and she feels the weight of the corpse on the plaza floor behind her. Yet she cannot turn to face it. She falls into herself. Her silver eyes look vacantly off towards the orchard as she grabs the grey mare's reins and leads it out of the plaza, down the hill. The bark peels off the wilting trees, shrouded by mist. The leaves have long shriveled away, and whatever fruit may have been reaped from the dying branches has long vanished. The hill slopes down and flattens out. The mist lies by the flat ground, surrounding the many trees in the area. By the road, the mist is thinner, but as the orchard expands down the hill, the mist grows heavier. The witch, in her dazed state, has led her horse on foot all the way down the hill towards the orchard. She ties it to a fence by the road, pats it vacantly, and then she heads through the opening in the fence and down into the orchard. I wouldn't go down there if I were you. The witch turns to face the mysterious woman calling after her. She sees a young woman standing by her horse. A dark hood covers her long braid of brown hair. She looks malnourished and tired, yet she sports an eerie smile on her pale face. Her dress is well kept, but clearly very old. And she carries a weaved basket. Who are you? I'm from the village. You didn't answer my question. And you're not heeding my advice. Leave. Now. Witch. There's nothing down there for you. Only death. I've died already, girl. It has no hold over me. The pale girl's smile quickly turns to a scowl as she watches the witch turn away from her and approach one of the trees. You haven't died yet. Not in a way that matters. The witch turns to face her but finds that the girl has vanished. She looks around. No sign of the girl anywhere. Confused and concerned, she turns and continues walking towards a nearby tree. 
The witch takes out a small knife from her coat. Her hands still shaking, she stabs into the bark of the trunk. As she removes the knife, the tree begins to bleed a noxious black stream that looks more like blood than sap. As the blood dribbles down the bark, she sees that it fizzles away at the wood, eroding a few layers of tree as it descends. She takes a case out of her coat pocket, opening it to reveal several small vials. She scrapes some of the blood from the tree with her knife into one of the vials. She closes the vial, placing it back into the case. As she's about to clean the blade off with the decaying bark of the tree, she pauses, looking at the residue on her knife. She places the knife on the ground, gathers a bundle of sticks near the tree and orders them into a small campsite. She takes a deep breath and snaps her fingers. The fire ignites. Henrika instinctively jumps back. She holds the knife's pommel up to her clothed mouth and utters a command. The knife then flies off towards the fire. The blade hovers above the fire, burning the residue away from the tree off of the steel. As the blood is burned away, a deafening scream of a woman is heard coming from the knife. Henrika snaps her fingers once more and the fire goes out. The scream stops. One side of the knife is scorched black, the residue is gone. The other side, however, is still covered in black blood. She flicks her wrists and the knife rotates. The side of the knife with the blood now faces the smouldering fire. Henrika snaps her fingers and the fire emerges once more. The fire burns away the residue and the deafening scream returns. Henrika keeps the fire going. Her breathing becomes more agitated as the scream grows louder and more severe. Her skin feels foreign and hot. She feels the heat of the fire surround her. She struggles to breathe. The screaming stops. She snaps her fingers and the fire goes out. She gasps and falls to her knees. The knife falls to the ground by the campfire. She pulls down her scarf so that she can breathe clearly. Her face is horribly disfigured. Severe burns surround her mouth, cheeks and ears. Her nose is almost completely destroyed and her lips are completely removed, leaving her gnarly teeth out in the open. She sees her breath in the air for a moment before getting anxious, pulling the scarf back up and looking around. Nobody is in the vicinity and she breathes a sigh of relief. She removes her hat, stands up tall and wipes the sweat from her brow. She whistles and the knife darts back into her hand. The residue from the blade is gone. She wipes the soot from the steel and as the blade is cleaned, she finds that the steel has rusted rapidly. She looks back towards the tree, still bleeding. Henrika uses the rusted blade to dig around the earth by the tree, seeking its roots. As she begins to dig, the dry earth turns moist and with each dig, a puddle of noxious black blood appears. Henrika pushes forward. Each upheaval of dirt gets smaller and smaller as the blade sizzles and erodes away. The witch looks at the pommel of the knife in her hand, then chucks it away. She gets another vial from the case and delicately collects some of the blood from the ground. She gets to her feet and looks down further into the orchard. She stares at it for a moment, then looks down at the vial of black blood in her hand. She places the vial in her coat and descends the hill. It is a cold spring day, but as she approaches the mist deep in the orchard, she feels the temperature drop rapidly. She takes down the scarf wrapped around her face and breathes, seeing her breath in the cold air. She takes a step forward and enters the mist. The ground within the mist crunches with each step. Henrika feels every breath get heavier and her head grow more faint. She feels an overwhelming sense of nausea as she grows to a halt. Her knees begin to shake and her head begins to thrum. She begins to breathe slowly in an attempt to calm herself, but it is to no avail. Suddenly, she hears movement from behind her. A strange cacophony of rustling branches surround her. She turns and sees one of the orchard trees come to life. 
The trunk twists and contorts as its great branches bend down and tries to grab her. She darts out of the way just in time as the branches crash down before her. The witch begins to make her retreat out of the mist. A branch grabs her by the ankle and pulls her back. The branch pulls her towards the tree. She tries clawing against the dirt to slow her track, but to no avail. The stem of the tree opens up, lifting the trunk a few feet off the ground and revealing a huge puddle of noxious black blood bubbling underneath. Mind racing, the witch turns so that she is on her back. She uses her one free leg to push against the tree trunk. The tails of her coat sizzle away as they touch the puddle. The branch tightens its grip around her ankle. She yelps out in pain as splinters protrude her skin. She grabs a vial of black blood from her pocket and chucks it at the branch. The vial smashes against the wood which begins to sizzle. The branch breaks as it erodes away. The tree loses its grip on her. She gets up and runs away. More branches reach out after her but she dodges them ably as she sprints forth. The sound of contorting bark surrounds her as she dares not look back. The pain in her ankle is mind-numbing but she makes it out of the mist. She sprints through the orchard up the hill until she reaches the main road. Collapses to the ground and catches her breath. Her throat burns and her heart feels as if it were about to burst. She rolls up her trouser leg, removing her boot to examine her wounds. Large splinters stab into the skin. The wood is decayed and as she removes the splinters from her skin they turn to ash. She grabs a case from her left jacket pocket containing vials with clear liquids. She removes a fresh cloth, opens a vial and dabs the cloth in the liquid. She proceeds to clean her wounds, it stings horribly. Black pus scurries out of her wounds as she cleans them. The witch quickly grabs another vial from her coat and collects a sample of the black pus. She then wipes the rest away. The witch further inspects her wounds. She concludes the wounds are only skin deep. No need of stitches, but bandaging is a necessity. She scurries through her pockets and sighs in relief as she finds a fresh roll of bandages. She uses all of them to wrap up her ankle. With the bandage set, she rests for a moment. Her ankle thrums as the pain courses through her. It is early afternoon and she observes no changes in the trees she can see outside of the mist. She gets to her feet and whelps when she places too much weight on the injured foot. She pulls up her scarf, looks around cautiously and then limps back down the hill. She grows to a halt around the border of the mist and looks inward. She sees the tree that had attacked her, now lifeless and still. She grabs another small knife out of her pocket and painstakingly kneels down. She begins digging at the ground near the mist. As she digs, no black blood appears. She gathers a small handful of dirt and places it in one of her last free vials. She gets to her feet, looking over the mist one last time before heading back up towards the road. The crowd had dispersed quite some time ago, but the villa remains tense. It is mid-afternoon as she makes her way through the plaza. She spots the stable boy. He holds the satchel bags, looking nervous as she passes. She dismounts, tries to hide the agony of the landing and leads the horse over and hands him the reins. She does not look at the boy and then takes the bags off him. He holds the bags over her shoulder. Then she looks back at the alley to the back door of the cellar and then up to the main entrance of the villa. She then slowly begins to limp up the steps to the villa main door. She enters the villa. The entrance is grand and lavish. Yet like the rest of the villa, the peach walls exude no warmth. Marble statues align the walls along the paintings of battles long past and a portrait of the Lord himself. The witch steps forward and sees the butler quietly exit the room on the other side of the entry corridor. He looks down at her, startled for a moment, yet that feeling sours and he looks remarkably bitter. I take it you have returned from your investigation? Yes. I have an idea what is ailing your lands, but I need to test some samples I have collected. Do you have a room with an open fire? I do. Come. The butler leads her down the hallway towards a narrow oak door. 
He looks back and sees Henrika limping. I see you appear to be injured. Do you require medical assistance? Thank you, but I can take care of myself. I see. Did you find any trace of the children in the orchard? No. A shame. It would have alleviated some concern. Concern for the families? Or concern for your lord? Both. The violence we witnessed today. Grief and rage and fear alike. If we don't fix whatever is ailing the orchard, the peasantry will suffer if they continue to wail like this. That's not even considering the repercussions if we miss the next harvest. And what of the lord? What repercussions will he face? Will he be forced to starve? Don't be absurd. The Lord will never starve. Of course. For even when he had no land or titles, he always had plenty to feast. Do not dare question the Lord's right to his position. You have no idea what he has had to endure. He has endured merrier winters and more minor plagues than most people alive today. After all, it was not the Lord's child who went missing in the mist. The Lord has not been blessed with his own children to lose, which He treats his subjects kindly and gracefully as if they were his own children. There is no graceful means to lord over anyone. His title implies superiority. It is not an implication. It is the truth, the great truth. Due to the emperor's command, he is entitled to the powers and privileges he has inherited. For the emperor would not simply deem anyone worthy of such a responsibility, only the most just. The emperor is six years old. Regardless, the lord is entitled to respect, and you will respect him or face the consequences. Come. He opens the door and leads the witch downstairs. They descend one storey, arriving at a small door corresponding to the stairs which go further down. The butler opens the door and they enter into a small room with a fireplace. A table stands in the centre of the room, layered in a coat of dust. The walls are blank and the floors dusty. The bricks are old and there is a faint dampness in the air. We're having the room renovated in a matter of months, bringing some carpenters down from the north. I hope this will accommodate. It will suffice. The witch places her heavy bag onto the table, nodding to the butler. The butler nods and then heads out. If you need anything... I won't. Henrika looks around and sees there is a small window in the corner. She approaches it and closes the window blind. She takes off her hat and gloves. She runs her burned hand through her shortly trimmed platinum white hair. She then removes her scarf and coat. She places the scarf and hat on a chair in the corner while she searches for a hook on the wall to hang her coat. She finds one and gets to work. By late afternoon, the butler descends down the steps towards Henrika's room. Seeing smoke rising from beneath the door, he rushes to open the door. As he opens it, a wall of smoke washes over him and he begins coughing sporadically. His eyes water as the smoke dashes across his face. Coming out of the smoke, he sees Henrika, now donning a pair of goggles and her old scarf wrapped around her mouth. Her sleeves are rolled up, revealing her severely bent forearms and hands. She holds two vials in each hand, mixing them precariously as she makes her approach. Witch! What is the meaning of this? The witch does not look at him. Instead, she holds one hand up and looks at the vial. I've completed the first steps of my investigation. Tell the Lord I want a meeting with him to discuss my fee. Through teary eyes, the butler sees something. Within the vial is a black ooze with a blood-like texture. He sees something moving within. Disturbed, the butler retreats out of the room and back up the stairs. As evening falls, the overcast sky darkens and a strange heat is in the air. 
The butler leads Henrika into the garden where they meet with the Lord once more. The lamps along each and every column are dim. She has once again donned her hat and coat, never wanting to be far from either of them. The Lord is seated on the bench, a book by his side, and a glass of wine in one hand. So, have you concluded your investigation? Part of it. There is quite a lot left to do, but I have identified the problem. Good. So, what is plaguing my land? It is a curse, as I suspected. Someone cursed the land? Just the orchard, but the curse grows more powerful, and it has stretched its claws through the valley. How? Most curses occur under two conditions. They are either conducted by someone who possesses powerful arcane or divine power, such as myself. However, there are many cases in which a curse is brought upon by a normal person with no such power. This is due to a stroke of luck, or bad luck. In the prior case, there is nobody in the entire empire more powerful in the arcane arts than myself, and even I do not have the power to curse an entire valley. There are no crusades occurring, so the divine casters are still residing in their cathedrals within the citadels. So some miserable peasant has cursed my land? No. Like I said, the person needs to be incredibly lucky to cast a curse such as that. We've all heard of peasants cursing each other, which have resulted in infertility, madness, the list goes on. However, all recorded cases of these curses were conducted in areas of high arcane intensity. Places like the Anglet or the Mound. The environment in a small moment was used as an inadvertent manipulation by an unknowing person to hurt another person. Sounds like what is happening here. Joseph, gather the guards. We'll find this peasant and they will suffer for their ignorance. You won't, because this isn't what happened. I tested your soil. There is no natural trace of arcana. The land is not hallowed, so no divine powers reside here. Something unnatural is plaguing your land. Do you know what it is? I do. Well, do tell. You're dealing with powerful blood magic. A death curse. I see. And what exactly brings about a death curse? As the name would suggest, a death of a disturbed individual or an otherwise violent death. Instead of the individual repressing the trauma of death and turning into a spectre, the victim utters a curse in their final moments, connecting with the land. Blood is both divine and arcane. It is both from the gods above and the earth below. When used, it can conjure powerful magic. Blood magic. The curse could have been deliberate or said in a moment of pain. Nonetheless, it was activated and the victim has become the plague that festers your land. Can you remove it? Curses are notoriously difficult to break. The vast majority ever cast are yet to be broken. So, what? Do you expect me to give up the land that is rightfully mine? It's not your land anymore, it's theirs. Ludicrous! Deny all you want. It is true. Venturing through the orchard this morning, I encountered some trouble with the trees. 
they had come to life and attacked me. I managed to escape narrowly and collected more samples from the earth. While the trees within the mist had come to life, those that were outside the mist remained still. Is that so? Ha! Splendid! I have plenty of land, not riddled by mist. They're still under my control. Not quite. The mist is just a symptom of a larger disease. When I was collecting samples, I found traces of this black substance seeping from the trees. It possessed the texture of blood, but had the effects of a powerful acid. I did an experiment on sight and discovered that the blood, when burned, emits a screaming noise. Digging through the ground, I found a small pool of black blood in the roots of the tree. It had eroded the metal of my blade, but I managed to collect a sample. Black blood. Is that the very same thing I saw you with in your quarters? It was, yes. And is this black blood everywhere within the orchard? Only in certain areas, such as the trees. The ground outside the mist is coarse and rough, but possessed no blood. However, my testing did pick up faint arcane and divine mutations. These mutations were how I was able to determine the cause of the curse was unnatural, for the two magics do not naturally occur together. I suspect that there is a network of roots in the ground below, transferring blood around, drying the land. But while the blood may flow through the trees, the trees are vulnerable to the blood. Exposed to the blood, the trees will erode. It is my theory that the trees are dying because the blood is destroying them from the inside. If the trees are dying, how are they coming to life? The curse acts through the blood. Though not entirely sentient, the blood is living. When it flows through the roots of the trees, it creates a bubbling puddle among said roots and commands the trees, giving it a life of its own. The victims will have grown nauseous and frail upon entering the mist, making them more susceptible to attack. The trees will drag their victims towards it and drown them in the puddle of black blood. And you say this black blood is acidic? Yes. So the children? We can presume that the children are dead. Good heavens. But what of the nightmares that the children of the village have endured? How does the curse cause this? I don't know. The specifics of the curse and who had died casting it remain a mystery. I need to ask the villagers, but your butler can attest to the poor welcome I was given. It's true, my lord. Father Loxlale gathered a mob to protest the witch's arrival and then instrumented a riot. A poor woman was killed. They are rather agitated by her presence. They may refuse to cooperate. They will if I command them to. Is there anything else? Yes, my fee. Fee? You've just told me that my land is doomed and that I should abandon it. And you dare ask for your fee? We had a deal. I investigated. I uncovered the type of curse it is. I am entitled to what I'm owed. But yet you yourself claim that your investigation is yet to be complete. You have not discovered the cause of the curse. The cause of the curse could be anything. It could take weeks to discover. And so you will spend weeks investigating. For I promised you 50 gold crowns. And I will give it to you when, and only when, you finish this investigation. Is that understood? I don't... Is that understood? I understand. In the meantime, can we inform the parents of their children's fate? Save them some concern. Better to know than not to know. 
No, we won't tell them anything. Excuse me? We're not telling them a bloody thing. You recall the violent greeting you experienced this morning? No, they are too frantic to handle the news. We will wait until this entire thing blows over. Frankfurt, this is Lord the- Frankfurt to you, witch. And this is not a debate, for that implies you could possibly win. We will inform the peasantry after the curse is removed. And maybe not even then. The way these people have been composing themselves. Disgusting. You will not tell them a bloody thing, which you will do whatever you can to complete this investigation. And then, and only then, will I part ways with that fee. Is that understood? Yes. Good. Now go. I wish to be alone. As evening grows late, the witch finds herself eating alone in her room, her lab equipment scattered around precariously. She ate alone and spent the evening checking her wounds. Because of the concerns brought upon by the mob of villagers earlier that day, the Lord rescinded any offers of a warm bed in his guest chambers. Consorting with the witch was bad enough. Having her sleep under his roof would be even worse. The staff of the house were under explicit orders not to talk about the witch to the other villagers under threat of flogging. When the priest came to the villa in the night, the butler explained that the witch had gone out into the woods to sleep, that the Lord had heeded their advice and had not provided shelter to the hag. Content, the priest went on his way. The dank room she found herself in was ill-fitting for sleeping quarters. She had scared some servants into clearing the dust from the floor, but they could not provide any bed coverings. Under order of the Lord, she was not to be helped in any such way. The witch was forced to use her camping bedroll, which made the coarse ground a bit more comfy than it otherwise would be. She lit the fireplace and laid no closer than ten feet to it. Her back was cold, but she could not make herself move any closer. She stared into the crackling fire, wrapped in her blankets. wanders through the dark woods with two villagers walking behind him. The priest stumbles forth with a torch in hand with the two villagers, one stocky and one lanky. We follow him from behind, one with a pitchfork in hand and the other with a plank of wood fashioned as a bat. How much further do we have to go, Father? Be patient, child. We will not only want to see her. It's so dark, Father. Could, could we not have stopped to get more torches? There was simply no time, my child. They should trust in me, for the Lord is on our side. The creaking of wood is heard from behind. The villagers turn to face it. What is that? Father? They turn and see the light is gone. The priest is nowhere in sight. More creaking is heard, this time ahead of them. Father! Where are you? So this, I'm going home. No, wait, wait! The lanky man rushes off, leaving the stocky villager behind. The stocky man looks around nervously and goes to follow the other. Joshua! Joshua, where are you? But as he follows in that direction, he hears it. <laughs> he rushes forth, but as he does so, he feels something tangle around his ankle and he falls down to the ground. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no! 
As he descends below into the depths, the last thing he sees is a hooded figure looming over him. He does not see its face, yet he feels a smile sear into him as he drowns beneath the tree. <laughs> to be continued. The Witch and the Orchard. Starring Marguerite Murphy as Henrika Ordeur, Andrew McNeil as Joseph the Butler, Aaron Hickland as Lord Frankford, Connor Charlton as Father Loxlale and Villager Number One, Jeremy Mottram as Lorcan and Villager Number Two, Tasha Henderson as the Pale Girl, narrated by Frank Cannon, recorded by Craig Sheridan and Sean McDonnell at Amp Studio Belfast. Special thanks to Sal Brennan. Special thanks to freesound.com and 99sounds.com. Created by Desmond Lynch. <laughs>